0: Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, Connor Harris and myself decided to do a &A, Q&A from from Instagram. So basically, Connor and I collected a bunch of questions from people on Instagram, and we answered them to the best of our abilities. Uh, Connor was in town from Portland, traveling down to the California area, so we were able to do this together in person um, in between... Uh, or at the halfway point, I suppose, of the podcast, we were able to get in a quick sprint session, so he had some reference points for some of the things we discussed on the podcast today. Um, uh, the topics were not were including, but not limited to, speed and agility training, um, addressing asymmetries in performance, uh, assessment tests. Connor does a nice job uh, going through some of his basic assessments uh, to ascertain where to place a person. Uh, when working out with him in terms of load placements load strategies and um, biomechanical things that he wants to work on for each person um, which was awesome and uh, we just had a great time chopping it up overall and uh, hopefully you all enjoy this episode of the podcast and as always make sure you give Connor a follow on Twitter and Instagram he does a phenomenal job there links will be in the show notes for you to follow him there um, but we're going to jump right into it here with the first question. Hope you all enjoy. All
1: right. So the first question is from Dylan. He asks, non-negotiables for field sport athletes. I think that's in your wheelhouse
2: quite a bit. Yeah, I would I would hope so. At least I hope I know something mm-hmm. about that. Uh, I think the easy answer is, is sprinting. Um, but we can go into some reasons why that would be. Um, Most field sports, I feel like you're going to, there's gonna be some level of max velocity required for almost any position that's out there for the Mm -hmm. most part, right? And um, in order to, we talked about this last night, there's two pieces to me in sprint training that I think are important um, factors to consider. One is uh, load. And Mm -hmm. so we have to understand how much load is going on at top speeds in competition and practice and prepare them for that because obviously if we go way too far out of their wheelhouse and what they're prepared for from a loading perspective once they get back to the sport or once they're in the sport that's probably where we're at most risk for injury right so i think load is the biggest is one of the biggest factors the other is the build the build up of a a technical the technical skill of sprinting Uh Um, and we don't have to train all of our field sport athletes to be track sprinters necessarily but they need to understand some of the you know we're just talking about this with French bosch's stuff off the air they we need to be uh, looking at what some attractors are and then try to establish those attractor states for them within sprinting and then allow the fluctuators the things that they're gonna do that makes them kind of uniquely their own style see which ones fit and work for them and see which ones don't now I will say this it, I think a lot of what you see in the team setting is it's it's more of the loading side of things but if we could find a way to incorporate the skill side especially in periods that might be less uh, cluttered with games and practices and stuff like that um, and, and you can get the athletes to buy into to developing the skill side of things where it's a little bit slower paced in terms of the training session um, it, it, I think it's really important but that's that's like a key thing to think about right like you've worked have you worked with that you've worked with athletes before where oh, yeah. they just want to come in and just get their shit done and get out you know yeah. right yeah. and I feel like when we're doing sprinting the, the mentality for that for athletes can't be that if we want to focus on the skill side Mm -hmm. Um, so you that's just knowing your population and knowing like okay how much can I really talk about the skill side here how much time do we have to do that Um, how much are they going to be receptive to it before they just want to go we just want to get this in and and be done with it you know Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it takes time to like build in the skill side of things just due to all the constraints like the constraint of interest of the athletes the constraint of time because uh, it takes a lot longer. They're really long sessions, and it looks like you're not getting a lot done to the outside person. So if you have someone with someone who has oversight on you, that can be a big problem. Yeah. Um, right? So, yeah. so um, yeah, you have the skill side and then the load side. I think those are the two things that you really have to focus on. You have to be aware, like we talked about last night, know your sport. Uh, there's tons of GPS data out there right now, like especially at the professional level of soccer, where you can break things down by position and figure out what the average speeds are, what the top speeds are and how long they spend at each of those speeds. So then you know from a loading perspective of where we need to be once the games start. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. What do you you think about
1: all that? Yeah, I think um, when you get to field sport athletes, you're probably gonna be a strength and conditioning coach, right? And so if you're a strength and conditioning coach, um, there is inherently a amount of, I think you used a good word, bandwidth that you have available to you to actually get the outcomes that you want. So with that in mind, it's really like you talk to anyone that's worked with really high level athletes, they'll tell you that the amount of time, resources, and everything that you can put in is just so dramatically limited with these individuals. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna be picking my attractors for both sprinting and in the weight room. Um, for lack of a better term, attractors, meaning like things I know all these people are going to need and I'm going to look out for, uh, whether that be within the program itself or within certain biomechanical qualities. Mm -hmm. So I think we got to pick those and then incorporate that into what you said about the load, about the skill. Um, But ultimately, we got to also appreciate that like we do want them to get faster. And the best way to do that is sprinting. And yeah. then I think that's way more important than spending more time relatively in the weight room. But you also don't need a lot of sprinting to get what you want. So um, the weight room stuff, I don't know. What to, if you have higher level athletes, I was just talking to someone about this. And they asked me a really good question. If we're doing all this compressive stuff, like uh, sprinting, uh, high, high entry velocity cutting, Um, just a lot of wear and tear and a lot of high force output stuff. How much of that stuff do we really need to do in the weight room? And I was like, you know what? Probably not that much if they're advanced athletes. So really, if you have better athletes, then I think more focus on the field stuff, stuff that's really their sport is going to be so much more impactful than spending more time in the weight room because they are like, I really don't think people need to be that strong or that quote unquote explosive in the weight room to be exceptional athletes. Um, but if you have more beginner athletes, more novice athletes, then I think that stuff has a lot more value. And that's when I'm going to actually, because you do anything with beginners, they get better, right? Mm-hmm. So that's also the tricky part too, It's a two headed coin. You then have to incorporate more of the technical stuff. But that's where you've helped shape my opinion a lot on this stuff and how simple it can be to actually teach sprinting. Because I think a lot of coaches look at it and be like, there's a lot of different ways you can do this you know um are we are we looking for triple extension are we looking for all these other things yeah. but i think you have a lot of good thoughts in incorporating the technical side for novices which i'm still yeah. learning from well, every,
2: everyone's going to have their model and and i think like you said if you're getting someone that doesn't do a lot of sprinting outside of their game environment they're mm-hmm. probably going to end up getting faster no matter how you train them as long as you're not completely crippling their ability to just turn it on when they need it mm-hmm. by by tons of cues and extra stuff and all that other th- all those right. other things but um it, yeah you're if you have the like if you have a model I think that's a good thing like there are things I look for um you know in, in my kids you know that I that I work with from time to time who sprint that being said I keep it really basic and simple because it like I know it's going to work as long as I keep it basic and simple once they understand the, like the two or three things that are really important to me that are that are you know non-negotiable so to speak mm-hmm. once they understand those things that's when we can start branching out a little more and start having conversations about mm-hmm. um you know where to go from there what they prefer stuff like that and 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 that's i think the beauty of like the art of coaching this stuff is is like initially when you get to like coach someone at at first uh I, there's not going to necessarily be a connection right away. So you just need to keep it really simple, give them opportunities to succeed with like really simple stuff. And then once they start to see themselves succeed and you've built a, you know, more of a rapport with them, that's when you can start going, Oh, what do you really think about this? You know? Cause mm. I think a lot of like younger athletes too, they're not like super introspective. Yeah. So they don't really know what's going on. They're, they're just, just doing, doing things. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if you, you know, I've noticed this when I've coached before. Like, I'll come up and like ask the kid, what, "What did you feel there?" And they look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, yeah. "I'm supposed to like be aware of something while I'm doing this." And I'm <laughs> like, "Well, I mean, not necessarily. I don't hate that you're you're just kind of doing your thing, but like, did it feel good? Like, mm-hmm. did you feel like you were accomplishing something?" And and there's just so many like box checkers out there. That like just alerting them to the fact that like just checking the box is not enough, like you need to be able to feel like there's some improvement going on here is very important. I feel like that helps a ton um, in this realm, particularly as you start to build the relationship and the non-negotiables start to be met. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can start to really push the conversation forward about like what they like with certain things what works what doesn't work and then kind of go from there if that makes sense that's yes well, so what are,
1: chances, like, <laughs> what are those like but what are those two things that like for a novice athlete that are your attractors. like the non-negotiables The non-negotiables um, yeah uh,
2: so a Darians are uh, inside edge athletic posture and transverse arch mm. um, I think the transverse arch is super important. What is the transverse um, arch? So, that's where if I had my foot on the ground, I would take my pinky toe, move it away from the other five toes, uh-huh. stick the, that meth, meth head. Meth head. Meth meth head, head. Put meth meth that head. meth yeah. head in there. That, that, uh, that met head <laughs> into the ground. And that will kind of automatically trigger the big toe as well. So, now I have big yep. toe and little toe, pinky toe. They're locked in, and it's an arch across the foot. What does that do? Um, it gives you better access to the Achilles. Uh, It allows you to find inside edge better, uh, and I think, to me, it gives you a much better sense of the ground and stability as you make contact with it, Mm. as opposed to just kind of hitting it with a dead foot or using your toes, which is, for me, like the biggest of no-no's. Uh, if you're digging your, t- if your, if your toes are into the ground, into the ground, you're kind of like gripping the ground. Like you might, yeah. like we kind of coach that in a squat or something like that. I think for running, that's just absolute garbage. Like it yeah. just doesn't, I don't even like it when they yeah. do it in squat like that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, like- I would rather, I would rather set up like a more of a tripod foot or something yeah. like that for sure. Like yeah. I want activity going on at those med heads and the heel. Right. And so that's going to set up just a much better foot in general. Um, but yeah, so, so those are a Darian's. I think for me, I think all of those are important. I think athletic posture is number one. Like I need to be able to see like a spine that is, uh, like I, the ability to get depth into like a nice athletic posture in terms of like hip flexion and then being able to kind of have like a long spine where, um, everything's almost like pulled into, into neutrality to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, something like you would talk about, I think a lot in like your stuff in the gym. Right. Um, I think if you could do that and you then have the ability to access a lot of different positions at multiple angles, um, which I think is important. Um, and it also gives you the best ability to stay squ- a little more squatted when you're running at max velocity. Um, so athletic posture is going to be my big one, a big one for me. I think shin angle drop and acceleration is super important. Yeah. The ability, the ability to have a great range of change in the shin angle and to be able to do it, uh, like at, with a decent velocity, because In that terms does of, what the shin angle drop the shin angle to. the shin angle drop is basically enabling you to allow gravity to do the work mm-hmm. to yield a little bit more and so i think honestly what that's what that's doing for you is like we can't accelerate at 9.81 meters per second gravity can move you know, can pull us down at 9.18 meters per second yeah. so if we allow the shin angle to drop with that rapid pace boom already we're moving very fast and if we allow it to drop drop far enough Uh, it can kick in a cross extensor reflex, right? So almost to the extent of like, and I'm sure you've seen like some of a Darian stuff where if I drop my front shin fast enough, all of a sudden my, I I feel like I'm falling and losing my balance when I get low, that pelvis will shoot forward and the other leg will move forward. And so it's almost like you're not, I'm not even, um, propelling the, the swing leg through. The swing leg through is coming coming of its own accord based on the fall that just happened so almost like a cross extensor reflex if i were to like you know you go to the doctors and they hit that spot in your Mm -hmm. knee and you and you automatically just kind of jerk the knee up it's reflexive it's it's exactly like Mm -hmm. and this is what darian preaches he just wants it to be as reflexive as possible and um younger kids is a lot easier for me it's hard like because i just rely so much on um I rely so much on pushing and overcoming, just because that's been my strategy for so long. Yeah, I, I have to really let my, you know, let my trust myself to accept the fall and then move into the next thing. But I think that's to, to further on the shin angle a little bit more. After that first shin drops, cross extensor reflex hit, swing leg comes through. The the next step of all this is to keep the pelvis moving forward as it has. If it keeps moving forward, even if we don't bring the leg back in underneath the hips which is like obviously a lot of people's not one of their non-negotiables in sprinting Mm. what i see is is if you hit it and it's it's right at the center of mass or slightly in front of the center of mass if we're still moving forward as we were with the pelvis i have i think that's not a bad thing if we if we miss our spot and it's not back behind the center of mass it might Mm. be bad but if we're doing things correctly i don't think it's so bad because what happens the pelvis keeps moving and the shin drops forward again so yeah. now we have drop on drop on drop. If we have this overcoming strategy where we just stick and push and stick and push, the shin stops dropping. We might hit it and everyone will be like, Oh, what a nice angle. I was like, well, I want to see what happens after he hits the angle. Does the shin keep dropping? Mm-hmm. Or does it reverse back because of the extension bias that he has?
1: Yeah. You can't, you, know? you can't, um, uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You've, you showed me many videos of people who are constantly cued to push and then get that triple extension. And they spend so much time on the ground, yes. it's like they're almost, it's like, well, it's not like it, it is, you are um, you are basically sacrificing um, lower gro- ground contact times just to accomplish that push and triple extension. Mm-hmm. So you're spending more time on the ground so you can then in theory push more, but then you're working almost against gravity the you're moment you it. strike yep. the ground. You're which working doesn't against make a ton of sense if you're you really well, you're think working about against it hard. and you're
2: not loading joints, right? Right, like the shin angle the beauty of the shin angle dropping is joints get loaded, right? Yeah. Uh, Achilles really goes with that, it has a stretch to contract. But if the shin drops, which everyone's does on the first step, usually mm. if it doesn't, it's kind of weird. Everyone's drops on the first step, I just want it to drop even more and I want it to drop faster, I want you to allow it to drop faster, mm-hmm. um, but. If you watch the guys who push, the shin will drop, and then they'll go to fully extend, so the knee will then come back up. So the shin drops and then comes back up. So that's not really working with how I'm thinking about things. And now we're loading muscles instead of joints. And our timing, like if you watch guys that do that, like especially ones that overly rely on it, their timing's terrible, like the timing is not good. Mm -hmm. And so that's something like everyone's, Uh, you know, talks about slow motion video a lot. And I think it's really important for slow motion video to see what's happening with the shins, our joints loading, but then you have to back the whole thing up and then watch it from the jump and say, what does the timing look like? Because this is where I think people get too caught up in their models. Like I have an idea of what I want in my head, but if someone looked really good doing things a little differently Mm -hmm. and like really smooth, I don't know if it's really worth it, especially early on in a coaching process with someone to like try to coach them out of something that looks really smooth, Yeah, you know? even if it's not how i i think i even if i think they could get more out of what i want to show them if they're automatically doing something that looks really smooth i'm gonna like not say as much about it i'm just gonna kind of let it play out keep playing out try something a little different somewhere else and then and then move on from there Mm -hmm. um but yeah so athletic posture non-negotiable shin uh shin drop in terms of uh, level of dropping and then uh and then velocity of dropping. I think is a pretty non-negotiable for me. Like I need to see that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the final one I think for me would be initiating the hip cycle as quickly as possible. So that calf to hamstring uh, mm. that Adarian talks about. So if you are really good and you like watch a Ad- Adarian's so good at it and it's really fun to watch him play around with it. But like once the shin drops and the other leg swings forward, that remove and replace concept that Adarian has. So the backside leg that's on the ground, you want to get that thing up as quickly as possible. Initiate a backside switch, and that thing needs to start moving the calf towards the hamstring to cycle through. Mm-hmm. If you watch kids that are taught to be like excessively frontside, and I don't think frontside. Like everyone gets into this thing of like backside stinks. We need to be more frontside. Blah 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 yeah. blah blah. I, I mean, some kids certainly do. Like there's no doubt about it. But excessive frontside mechanics like I've, I've seen it happen so many times excessive front side mechanics completely throw everything off they make you slower mm. like if you're if all you're caring about is just knee drive and lift and getting out in front and all that stuff like and you're not and you're thinking of everything as a piston action where it's up down up down up down yeah. as opposed to like a si- a sicular action yeah um i don't know if cycular sic- cycular something secular. like that whatever yeah. folks who cares <laughs> um um uh you if you look the people that are the fastest can drop the shins keep them dropping and initiate a really fast cycle Um, the trick is to do that while still covering ground like for me personally like I've started to finally like I'm not great at dropping the shins on my subsequent steps but I I cycle really well Um, after a certain point the problem is is that I feel like I don't project myself as far as I need to go. And I do hate the word projection because it's so associated with front right. side and like right. going super far and, and fuck timing, just get as far out <laughs> yeah. as you can. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I, think that's kind of terrible, but, um, uh, you projection's still part of the game. And, and I think the, you know, like for me personally, like I don't project myself as well as I could cause I'm focusing on some of these other things, but that's why I do it on me. And then I can kind of figure it out when I'm coaching a kid. Like I can talk about the cycle, but I also need to make sure like they're getting somewhere. We're not mm-hmm. just spinning our wheels, not going anywhere. Um, and that's, that's where I think if you put, if you marry the cycle up with the shin angles, um, it really helps a ton. And I think ties in nicely. Like we talked, I'm touched on the pelvis a little bit. When the shin angle drops far enough, cross extent to reflex, pelvis shoots forward. If we keep the pelvis moving forward and we keep the center of mass moving forward, Achilles is utilized better. Shins continue to drop. Uh, we continue to make the most of our, each collision with the ground, with our foot. And, um, and that's, I think that's huge. I think it's way better than attacking the ground, killing things with an overcoming strategy that involves loading muscles instead of joints mm-hmm. and being excessively front side, if that makes sense.
1: So if I came into you, into your facility, uh, or I hired you today to get me to sprint faster and better, what are like what's like two drills you would do with me to help me sense those
2: things um so first off i would watch you run to be honest i think that's like one of the the biggest things is like uh we all like have a a pre-planned package of drills like that we want but for me it's like i'd rather see what you can do Mm -hmm. are you smooth can you move uh you know i I have some knowledge of like you know overcoming yielding compressive expansion strategies so i want to be able to see like you know what's the strategy generally for you while you're trying to run fast, um, and if and just you know see if you're an athlete really, yeah. you know like and if you're not okay then I can kind of like I really don't I, I can't really mess anything up you're not good at this already so yeah so now I can really like just take us back to square one uh, good example I have a buddy uh, Clint that um he does he's gotten really into the sprinting this summer and he had just finished like mass one by Pat Davidson so he was He's pretty big, dude. Yeah. Crazy compressed. Yeah. Like not able to relax at all while sprinting. So like he was just the classic triple extension pusher, like just so much wasted timing and like just mm-hmm. not a lot of good things going on. So I, I kind of showed him the shin angle stuff and everything. He still didn't load the joints very well. Um, but at least he got the idea of it the problem was is that he was just so jacked up like doing anything at like a maximum intensity yeah. even an acceleration was just not feeling good for him so i was like all right look like we're just going to work on falling and getting the shins going but we'll do it in a max velocity sense instead of an accelerative sense and I say that with quotations because we were never touching anything close to max velocity. So what we'd work on is I'd just have him kind of do a bunch of drop-in starts, like very soft starts so we're not going from a, a you know, standing still. We kind of like skip into it or walk into it or something like that. Okay. And we would just go through various drills. So one would be to promote good hip cycling because he was so front side dominant um another would be like squatty runs so he learns how to kind of sink into his hips a little bit more how far is he squatted down oh barely at all like i mean you could play around with different things with that for sure but i mean like at max velocity we're not talking about like actually squatting necessarily like the torso is still upright we just see the hips are seated a little bit lower we're not completely locked out like in that classic like upright posture that people talk about um and if you're in that squatty position, and the and the pelvis is still moving forward, you're gonna get you're still getting some nice shin angle change at max max velocity, which a lot of people I don't think they realize. Like everybody kind of I think thinks you're like right underneath your your hips as soon as you strike, and you just kind of push and move through, and there's no knee bend. It's like there's a subtle little knee bend, and 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 uh, you know the foot will land a little bit in front of the center of mass. There's a subtle knee bend, mm-hmm. and if the pelvis is moving forward the shin's gonna gonna there's gonna be shingle change in max velocity Mm. and i think people like overlook that a lot um you want to keep trying to accelerate like you want to just prolong acceleration for as long as possible so i don't understand why you would come underneath in this overcoming stiff strategy because you end up not utilizing your time on the ground there (laughs) might be less ground contact time and everyone's like super obsessed with ground contact time these days right like make it shorter make it shorter it's going to be shorter as you get faster we don't have to make it shorter it, it just is going to be shorter yeah um you might every and i think some people might have like a a, a baseline in mind of like oh it needs to be this quick or, or this fast or whatever for me i'd be more concerned with like well what are we doing on the ground i know the ground contact time is getting shorter but like let's let this
1: i mean is it though? is it really always getting shorter if you because i know i know like when i would work with athletes and cue them to do that stuff where i've heard any of this other perspective like i found that they were spending more time on the ground trying to push
2: uh relative to a strategy yes i mean in general of like mm. like accelerating okay like if you start me at zero and then you have me run as fast as i can through 50 yards the ground contacts are going to become less and less yeah until i hit max velocity and then they might you know maybe i hit max velocity at like 30 yards or 20 yards or something and then they maybe get a little longer but until you hit max velocity the ground context is going to get shorter mm-hmm. you know but from strategy to strategy. It depends. I don't. I actually couldn't tell you which strategy might be better. I think it would probably vary based on the person yeah. and, and yeah. what they're good at. But I will say this, like, being able to initiate shin angle change and have the foot come down slightly in front of the center of mass allows you to manage your collisions better. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes. So, like we we're so obsessed with stability but it's like okay if we if we're doing these stability drills where we jump like do a hop and then land and stick yeah like when there's no subsequent movement coming after that yeah so like that's never how it works that's not how it works yeah. so there's another movement and 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 the beauty of having movement on top of movement like that is is that's where we can get our stability yes. we don't have to worry about like stabilizing the knee in that sense because we're going to just keep the knee moving forward yeah. right so like if i if i land stiffly and underneath my center of mass Um, I'm almost killing some of the, uh, the the velocity that could be getting by doing that in my opinion, and not for everybody. I think everybody's going to be a little bit different, but like, if you're right underneath your center of mass, we've missed an opportunity to go through a little bit more supination to pronation. Like we've missed an opportunity potentially to Mm -hmm. allow the shin angle to drop forward and you stay a little more squatted so we can promote a really good fluid hip cycle. And I think all those things are super important. And I think they're happening more than people realize they are with elite runners. They just don't watch enough video and they don't watch enough in slow motion and they don't look at everyone running the race. I see. You know what I'm saying? Like they're all elite. And I feel like when we watch like a, an eight man race in a hundred meters with elite, like everyone, everyone watches the winner. And I'm like, oh, you should, you should. Cause obviously they're the winner. They're the best. Like mm-hmm. we want to see what they're doing, but there's nine other, you know, or seven other elite guys on the track. Like, let's see what they're doing. And Adarian does a great job. he will point out things. And be like, yep, that's why this guy did this. That's why this happened here. And I think that's really cool. But, um, but yeah, back to Clint and everything. Sorry, so many things. You're good. You're um, good. Back to Clint. Um, we did a lot of, like, s- s- controlled environment, max velocity work, working on squatty running, working on feeling the fall, uh, yielding a little bit into the ground, if that makes sense. So, like, a really good drill, aside from the squatty running that I liked, was um, – basically running in a linear pattern while looking laterally. So let's say I'm running straight and I'm looking to the left the whole time while I'm doing it. And that really facilitates a lot of shin angle change and um, and things we wanna see in that nature. Why does that work? Um, we'll try, it. we should try it at some point. Sure. Yeah, we should, actually, we should, we don't have room here, but we can go to a field or something later and I'll show you. But just the act of centering your focus away, which I also think is great for sports because we need to be able to disassociate vision from path right. of travel because right. we might have to focus on something else. So I think it's a great drill, but um, it's allowing you, like especially if you project your xiphoid forward a little bit mm-hmm. while you do it, um, if you project your xiphoid for- forward, you kind of almost just start falling into your next step. And it's very effortless. And that's mm. the main thing with Clint is, like, I just want everything you do to feel like, I don't want you to strain or try hard. I just want you to feel effortless and smooth. So we did a ton of that and then kind of worked our way back into the accelerations a few weeks later. And it was night and day different. Like, he wow. just felt so much better. He's able to access the inside edge. Like, before, everything was very linear. So it's, like, if you watch certain sprinters that are strength coaches usually, like, if you get a behind view of them, like, everything is, like, shh shink shink like there's no torque going on there's no rotation of the foot yeah it's very like it's just very one foot sagittal. in front of the other sagittal based yeah yeah and then you saw and clinton was like that and then over time i would just sprinkle little things on top so like we'd hit the accelerations and uh all of a sudden now he's dropping his shin he's loading his joints he's still really stiff once he gets past his second or third step so we had to keep working on him, relaxing everything for him so he could so he could you know for him it wasn't about running fast it was about learning to relax yeah and then once we started to learn to relax then we could start talking about actually running fast so his process took a while mm-hmm. it really took like pretty much like three all of quarantine that we had um but by the end i was able to start going okay now i want you to find the inside edge of your foot on that first step push off it once you find inside edge now some rotational things start to happen mm-hmm. throughout the whole body that's when things start to Started to click for him. I see. And he already had his cycle down from all the work we did up front. Mm. So, shin angles. Now, so, you know, he, he learned to load the shin angles right away, but he wasn't loading the joints. Or not, um, drop the shin, not load the shin. Drop the shin. But then he, all of a sudden, you know, when we went back to acceleration, he learned to load the shin, and then he already had the cycling going on, and he was just, he was actually moving, like, very well by the end of it, which was cool. A lot of work to do still, but, like, much, much better He was doing it a lot more pain-free. Like he had a lot less issues with like hips and low back. By the time we got there, he had like a really tight adductor that was bothering him. And uh, we just spent a lot of time just learning to relax, Um, you know, and so that's, you know, for other kids you're gonna have to spend a lot of time teaching them to like up the intensity, you know? But yeah, no, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Yeah.
1: So this guy asks, Nick, maybe some ways you program accessory work to regain variability, but also I think we could tie this into the last question about field sport athletes. Mm-hmm. So you can go first. Um, when it comes to programming accessory work, let's assume this is. I think he's probably talking weight room. Uh, how do you do that with your field sport athletes? What are
2: you going to do? Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, and for the programming talk, I'm getting ready to give Sean or give for Sean's uh, seminar coming up, and um, I think it's probably a super basic answer, but you got to think about things training along the lines of health and performance right and Mm -hmm. i think when we think performance in the weight room it's going to be probably like pretty extension based probably very compressive uh the strategy will be probably to move as much load as possible right Mm -hmm. um and so my accessory stuff then i look the other way right and i look more like you said along the variability lines instead of it being a performance thing a health thing um yeah so like what are this what's some stuff that we can restore neutrality of the pelvis Uh, Our intention will not be to move as much load as possible. It's more to put things in positions that people don't often get into, um, to, I I don't know, just kind of almost like even things out. right? And I think this is definitely more your wheelhouse than mine when we talk about that kind of stuff. But like for me, it's like, if I see a pretty compressed person, who's maybe like strategy in squatting is to shoot the hips back and it's more of a hinge-like pattern mm-hmm. uh, to move as much load as possible, like I'm probably very likely going to try to do something that's going to emphasize more vertical displacement of the pelvis, right? Um, and if we get that uh, along with some posterior expansion maybe, so like a Zercher squat with the yeah. heel elevated where we're really, I mean, the hips are almost doing none of the work in terms of like movement. We're just dropping the hips straight down. The knees are shooting forward pretty far and... Um, you know the the load placement is going to allow us to get some posterior expansion because of where the where the shoulders are, where the load is being placed, all that kind of stuff, right? And I mm-hmm. think that's obviously more your more your wheelhouse. But so I mean, we might have our our big movements of the day, depending on the person, be more performance based, where we're emphasizing more of an extended posture. but I think the accessory stuff needs to certainly be programmed with the variability and uh, sp- neutrality piece in mind, I think. Uh, I don't know about what you think with that, but that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at too. I think if performance is the goal, I think
1: that I'm going to be giving people what they don't have biomechanically uh, to actually, like, because you got to think about it in terms of like force absorption and propulsion. So most people are better at one than the other, whether that is outputting force or taking force and to absorb it. So if I have someone that, Really struggles to produce force. I'm going to do things that put them uh, in a state of propulsion. So I'm going to put them in things like late stance activities, things that have them uh, really emphasize that forefoot. Uh, I'm going to do that with constraints that promote that without actually needing to coach it that much. An example of that would be a rear foot elevated split squat with a same side load, ipsilateral load because when you do that, you are inherently in a rear foot elevated position, putting more weight on the forefoot than you are the rear foot. That doesn't mean your rear foot comes off the ground, but that's kind of what I'm going for with that constraint. I will then add a ipsilateral load because that's going to pull you to the side. And in order to balance yourself out, you're going to have to place more weight relatively on your arch, on your big toe, uh, on where you should be pushing off in late propulsion. So that's going to be a good way to get them to recruit the musculature associated with that and then that's going to get the outcome that I want. So I'm going to be thinking about that, uh, but also filling in those biomechanical gaps for health too. So if they don't have hip extension or if they don't have um, you know, internal rotation where they should need it, then I'm going to select constraints that promote that. But ultimately it's going to be heavy unilateral, it's going to be heavy alternating uh, because if it were up to me, that would be a lot of the program anyway. Um, So I'm really going to essentially fill in those gaps doing that.
2: I love that. I I have a quite quick question to build off that. Though I see you doing a lot on Instagram recently with the people lacking hip extension. Mm -hmm. What tests are you using? And then what are maybe some quick interventions you're doing to see like, I don't know if there's necessarily a quick fix for that, but something that you, take me through your process of a way to kind of like help someone recapture more hip extension and like obsession with you. Yeah. So. I think that is my goal is to establish sagittal
1: sensory motor competency. Like sagittal, just can you, are you good in the sagittal plank, can you move through it efficiently? Mm-hmm. Um, because after you get past that, then you start layering more complexity on top of it. So I think I'm going to measure it a variety of different ways. I'm going to look for it and cross-reference it through a variety of assessments. Like for example, uh, the most basic. Uh, thing you could probably do is just a general Thomas test, right? Lay on a table, hug your knees to your chest, and then uh, keep one pin to your chest with your arms as you let the other leg drop passively. And there are some problems with that test, but it also produces a fairly reliable outcome in my experience. So I will use that as a very quick assessment. Uh, you can also do an Ober's test. And the first part of the Ober's test is can you passively bring that hip back into extension? and not use lumbar extension to do it. And if you can't do that, then I know you're not going to get the rest of the test. Because it over is the adductor drop test? Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. They're sidelining you bring the leg up from a 90-90 angle, bring it back into hip extension and then see if they can passively drop it. Mm-hmm. So um, I will use that test and then I'll also cross-reference it uh, with, can they get in a half kneeling position and not extend their low back too much? Can they um, get in a half kneeling position with the front foot elevated? That requires even more. So those are things- And you're looking at the leg that's back then, Correct, yes. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that's what I'm going to use as like, can they get into hip extension? After that, if they don't have it, I'm going to give them, uh, usually most people are missing some degree of proximal hamstrings, and you can put them in positions too that facilitate hip extension with that. An example of that would be a floor press, where they are um, in a slight posterior tuck, they're on the ground and they're tucking off of the ground Uh, So you feel proximal hamstrings, maybe some lower glutes, and then you're doing a press from that position. You get some hip extension, you get some horizontal pushing, and then you could just work that in a variety of different ways. You can do more half kneeling position stuff. You can do more, um, like you could do decline bench work Like they're on a decline bench and you have some boxes underneath their feet so that they're pressing down with their heels into the boxes Mm -hmm. on that decline and they're going to be in
2: hip extension because of that decline Mm -hmm. so that's also another way you could do it uh that's weight room stuff in your experience do you find that a lot of people are missing like degrees of of hip extension oh god yeah. yeah yeah
1: almost everyone comes in missing hip extension um and honestly the biggest thing i do to make people feel better is restore hip extension and i think that's where the classic idea of a glute bridge came in. When that was first brought about, it was to engage people's glutes to get them to get more hip extension. But it, I think people forgot about the proximal hamstrings being a player and not, not that they're the end all be all, but it's I find that those muscles are way more important to get um, under control and actually working in hip extension yeah. before we move on to the glutes. Because Do you think
2: a glute bridge uh, is a, Effective, so long as we're not promoting, like, lumbar extension? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay.
1: It's great. Usually if they're not extending through the lumbar, they're going to find hamstrings too. That's what I, that's yeah. kind of what I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Okay, yeah. okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, that's a good point. But I think hip extension is so important for so many reasons. Um, just like we were talking about today. You, you've got to have it, um, but not necessarily for the reasons you might expect, right? Because in sport, you don't often find full hip extension and a lot of activities but you still need to have it because for example in running you've got to be able to fully extend your hip to complete that Mm -hmm. backside action Mm -hmm. right Um, you've also got to be able to do it to jump effectively and if you also don't have hip extension you're living in a certain biomechanical pattern that is going to be biasing certain tissues over and over again um, because you can't fully extend your hip and you can't actually complete that extension arc within your pelvis
2: yeah no i think that's huge man yeah i really like i like all that that you talked about there the gait stuff and the placement of loads and unilateral work i think is is pretty massive and i i I think everybody like it's nice to know that like these are exercises that are staples for a lot of people but i don't know if we've gone down the rabbit hole quite far enough like as a as a profession to understand you've done a great job addressing this with some of your instagram posts but like um just knowing when to use a contralateral load or when to use an ipsilateral load and what each one of them are potentially doing uh, to affect what's happening, you know, through the movement, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, you know? yeah. I think that's that's the key. It's to get the constraint and the outcome you want without having to coach the words like, I want you to feel this. It should be, "I." you are feeling it because the position you're this in is, is driving happening. the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. like we were doing, we were ripping some sprints before this, we were on a track and it was a beautiful day. That was really fun. And the difference between the stuff that I was, I grew up with, what I knew, the triple extension, the push the ground away, the stuff like that, and the actual mechanics of falling and letting it happen were so much different. And it was so much easier to feel myself be fast and feel the right things without having to coach and without having to coach something you can't really see necessarily. Yeah. Like how do you see that push? I don't know but i can see someone's shin drop mm-hmm. you know i think that's that's really uh that's the common takeaway that's what i see all the best coaches do is that um they just set the people up for success rather than tell them yeah tell them how exactly, to, do what to yeah, do. exactly yeah exactly yeah. yeah
2: i think it makes a huge difference all
1: right and core asks change of direction for running for cricketers i have messaged jack regarding this his inputs would be valuable well, clearly they want your opinion more than mine on this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, but here, here's the thing. Uh, my audience probably doesn't care about cricketing. Your audience probably doesn't really care about cricketing as much as other sports. I
2: uh, no, no offense to cricket. I actually just don't even know the rules, to be honest. I don't know shit about cricket. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I know, encore. thank you, by the way. I'm sorry, I did not get back to your question on Instagram a Ancor's couple weeks the man. ago. I've oh, been welcome. very... Very busy, so I apologize for that. But I'm glad we can kind of address it now. Let's just speak a little more globally about changing yeah, of direction. Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: Cricket's great. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> I'm sure it's a wonderful sport. Um, but more globally, I think the um, the takeaway for me, and we talked about it a little bit today, is is that once you've built like some of the linear speed concepts, and then now, and then you add certain things like a plyo step start or anything like that you've started to understand like how to accelerate in Mm -hmm. a straight line now all of a sudden I can go all right now I just want to accelerate in different directions so we might start laterally like we're getting ready to steal a base in baseball and then we do like you know lateral run step so we reposition the front leg come across and run in a straight line once we once we understand those things like how to reposition our foot in these in these ways and we understand how to utilize false steps to our advantage and, and whatnot. Then I think we can really start to hone in on some shuffling, some hip turn, mm-hmm. some of these basic change of direction, uh, you know, concepts, a drop step. We could start to teach those things in a little bit of a, uh, I would say, more controlled environment so that, they under, so that the athlete understands like, how to execute them. And, and a lot of times, too, sometimes you might not even have to do that, you could just say, we're gonna do this, and then we just see how it goes. That's actually, like, how I've had the most success with this. So, I'll backtrack and I'd say, like, we don't really necessarily need the controlled environment. I might bring them back to it after I've seen what they can do to isolate a particular thing they're not doing well. But then, once again, once they kind of execute that, because these isolated drills, they just don't take very no, long to master. No, watch out. <laughs> they don't take very long to master. So, like, why are we spending, like, all this time talking about Trigger that? Trigger warning. And, yeah, sorry mm-hmm. for anyone out there that's, like, really into these things. Like, I don't think they're bad. But, like, we... we most people that are decent athletes can pick these things up in two seconds, and yeah. then we have to move on to actually implementing them into something like worthwhile, which would be okay. Hip turn into the direction, and, and then you know shuffle or or, or step in the direction we want to go. Cut, reabsorb or cut, absorb the force, go back the other way, and get linear again. Because that's really what change of direction is about. Like we're not spending extended periods of time in most sports, with maybe basketball being the exception. Mm-hmm. We're not spending extended periods of time in field sports. Laterally shuffling all over the place, it's a couple steps here, a couple steps there, then reposition ourselves and get linear or get to another direction. We're not spending extended periods of time shuffling one way, shuffling another way, stuff like that. Yeah. So for me, it's it's more: do we understand the fundamentals of what initiates the change of direction, hip turn, drop step, uh, you know, reposition step, whatever? And then can we? How quickly can we get back to moving in a linear fashion, which is going to be the fastest way to get from A to B, right?
1: So. I can't shuffle my athletes across the baseline. 40 <laughs> <times>. <laughs>
2: no, and like again, if, if they're if they're not under, I'm not saying these are not these are bad things. I'm am I'm gonna use a shuffle sometimes, but for me, I'm gonna use it in the context of sprinting. So like when, for example, an athlete that I have right now, we spent a ton of time going over accelerations and 20 yards and 30 yards and 40 yards and he's gotten so good at the key fundamental principles which we just talked about, some of the non-negotiables, those non-negotiables trickle over into our change of direction work. All I'm doing now is just sprinkling some different stuff on top of it. So for example, I might start him at a cone and we go you know, 10 yards linearly. linearly. Maybe we've done that tons and tons of times and he's now got the non-negotiables down. Now I'm gonna change the constraint to the context, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna have him start laterally. He might shuffle away from the starting cone, two or three shuffles, Plant, then turn and get and get get linear again. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Or maybe we want to accelerate the other way. So I have him start the shuffle three or four yards behind the starting cone. Two or three shuffles. We get to the starting cone. He turns and goes. Yeah. So now all we're doing is we're just layering on top these change of direction principles to our linear work, and I think that's much more applicable to what's going on in sport. Um, yeah. And then if we want to take it to the absolute pinnacle of what's going on. Uh, we can just make everything reactive with another body. So like you mm-hmm. just have to mirror me and, and, and do what I'm doing and, and follow me around and that's gonna naturally like, and we're getting a lot of that in sport as it is. Mm-hmm. So like if you're an observant strength coach and you're going to your team's practices, like you're gonna see where they're lacking and that's where you can kind of address it in, in you know, your sessions. But then they're gonna get most of their hindbrain, uh, you know, uh, fast explosive work with that stuff in a natural or the natural organic environment of sport, mm-hmm. we can recreate that if we need to, right? Yeah. But I think in a lot of cases we don't. So for me, it's more just adapting the you know the non-negotiables and it, those technical non-negotiables we talked about in sprinting, back to the change of direction, and then boom, beautiful. You know,
1: yeah. And even in plyos, did you touch on that?
2: Uh, plyos, not really. Um, uh, the, jumping, like, the jumping is interesting. Yeah. I would say there's still principles that remain. But again, the jumping, and we talked about this with Pop, with Bosch a little bit earlier you know, off the air, mm-hmm. the jumping is so contextual to sport. Um, right. Like a straight-up vertical jump, very common in volleyball. Everything's very vertical. Mm-hmm. In, in basketball, a, you know, there's definitely a, a vertical component yeah. to it. But a lot of it's done, like, on the fly, like, moving and running That's and, right. and yeah. stuff like that. Like, there's in, in volleyball, there's, like, I don't know, there's a lot of similarities, but there's still subtle differences, right? Yeah. And I think jumping overall, there's, uh, there's things that still apply. Athletic posture, transverse arch, um, inside edge, rolling over the penultimate step Mm -hmm. as you're moving forward in a jump instead of making it strictly vertical yeah i think there's some some definite differences there or definite similarities there but overall i think they are they're they're a little bit different it's not quite the same same as change of direction Mm -hmm. um but yeah i would say if you if you have a base of linear speed just adding in these little things are going to be massive Mm -hmm. and then you know rich clark talked talked about this on a podcast with me earlier like once we've done it in a control like or not a controlled thing once we've done it From a starting speed of nothing, Mm -hmm. right? Like let's say everything, like everything I've just talked about there was mostly like starting from a static position. Now we need to start to add uh, curves and cuts with where the entry speed is higher, because that challenges what's Mm -hmm. going on from an angular perspective, right? Right. Um, The cuts become more aggressive, and I think again you get a lot of that shit in sports, Mm -hmm. so it's not you know as imperative that you do it. But there still might be some technical aspects that you need to introduce. So you might have to have someone come in at a pretty high speed and then execute a jump cut or something like that. Or come in at a pretty high speed and hit a curve. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think all those things can be implemented in training and they all kind of fall under the umbrella of change of direction and and, and, uh, agility. And um, yeah, I I just think doing stuff in, in strict isolate, these little simple isolation drills, I don't think they're the starting point really. I think you put the person in the environment with a certain thing that you want to see executed. And if they execute it, great. We don't have to even, we don't ever have to draw their attention to it, which I think is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. We don't want to draw people, our athletes' attention to something. They're already doing well. Just fucking do it, you know. Um, But then if we see that something's not good, then we can back them up, put them in the drill, isolate it get them to accomplish it and then immediately we don't have to spend four weeks on it spend five minutes on it it's, it's easy to execute like, yeah. like that low box based. like that yeah. like, like that lead tap low box draw I think that's a phenomenal drill when it's needed don't think you start there though I think you you progress through an issue there instead of starting there you know mm-hmm. um, and then within five to ten minutes they should easily have it figured out and then you go back to the the original thing you wanted to accomplish and they should be able to accomplish it and if they can't we can rethink the process but to me it's like i think they should be able to because potentiating with these these low level drills these low level drills are just potentiators for people that can't don't get it yes that's what i think they are yeah it's
1: it's interesting you think of um you think of a typical sprint progression program or you think of a uh you know corrective uh biomechanical program whatever uh you think about something like that and it's like four weeks of wall load lift and switches uh, it's it's uh dude we can you know do these saying? in seconds and why but yeah why can't we just take that and then do it right there then put them back in and see if it made a change like a test and retest that's
2: exactly what it should be and yeah. that's what we just did on the field like you're obviously like pretty compressed dude didn't don't sprint a lot mm-hmm. so you're very stiff so it's like we just need some drills that focus on relaxation so had you run a couple to you know ten yards from a two-point stance um, we ran through a couple relaxation drills, and you, your two next two that you ripped off afterwards, your ten yarders were significantly better. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, you're going to need more time working on those relaxation drills yeah. um, because you're just so far down the path of compression and pushing and overcoming Absolutely. and all that other stuff. So, like, you're going to need to keep going back to them, but they're just th- those things are just there to remind the brain that like, hey, you can do these things, mm-hmm. and then and then once the brain remembers, you can at least get a couple reps, quality reps in. Definitely. afterwards that show significant change from like where you started yeah. with the with the desired task Definitely. so you might have to go back and forth i'm not saying never use the simple drills again but i'm saying like there should be an interplay between them instead of we start at the beginner drills and we run through them forever and we never really develop any context for why we use them and we say that they do a great job and then we go to the track and half the shit doesn't even line up like yeah. four months later yeah. you know like that's how i like that's how i see a lot of that stuff um me too man yeah. i i just
1: know that uh when I do, when I was in, uh, North Carolina and I was working with high school athletes, I would do these a skips. I do these, um, a runs and all this, all this stuff you, you see. And I just would put them in sprints after that. And I would follow it just like most coaches would. Um, and it, I just couldn't find the carryover between the drills and the actual sprints other than it warmed their body temperature up. And I just, the drills we did actually meant something in a way that was like this, I can see how this actually should feel when I'm sprinting. I just need to do this in a slightly different context under different speeds. Mm -hmm. And it actually that helped me. Whereas the drills, when I do an A skip or when I do something like that, I I get why people think they would carry over, but it's so hard to feel that considering the idea and model of, of this like, Push the ground away, triple extension, and I think some people do need that. Like you said, like people need to learn to project. If they can't project, the stuff is very valuable. Mm-hmm. But not everyone needs this, like very blanket, yeah. one size fits all. Yeah. Uh,
2: front side is everything. Kind just, of idea. Yeah, we're just so far down the continuum. Like we don't even think about the other end of the continuum. In mm-hmm. my opinion, it's not necessarily bad. It's just it's it's problematic for the context that we're teaching it now. Yes. Um, yeah, we were talking about like banded stuff earlier. And like, I think like banded running, what is like, what is the goal of that? You know, a lot of people are like to increase force production. And I'm like, okay, like, okay. like there's lots of things we could do to increase force production. Yeah. And, and to me, like, yeah, if you have a very weak kid, like, okay, I don't think that's like the worst idea in the world. But it's to me, if we're like using a lot of, doing a ton of banded work, we're learning all about projection and pushing and like overcoming a resistance. Um, which I suppose for like certain, like maybe narrow, you know, ISA people, that's not a terrible thing. People who can't produce Yeah. Like that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it's like, what are we, what else is happening when we do that? Like, I think we're losing the timing aspect. Mm -hmm. We're certainly, uh, you know, the way they're being taught a lot of times, we're certainly ignoring the backside element of the sprint, um, which can be problematic. Um, and I'm not saying it's always bad. But I, and I think it's probably helping some of the things that it's being used for. But, like, for me, I would rather find another way yeah. while we're continuing to work on getting faster. Like, I'd rather just have you lift a little bit and get a little stronger. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to the, you know, the, the sprint portion, like, let's say we have a day where we have, you know, 20 minutes of sprinting. And then we're going to lift for 40 minutes or something like that. Like, I'd rather have the lift stuff work on increasing the force production aspect. And I'd rather just focus on the technical development of these kids. Um, on the track side of things instead of worrying about more force production. Yeah. I think we're, we're just putting all our eggs in the force production basket and these kids might eventually get really strong and, and will certainly get faster uh, because of the increased force production that they have. But, like, we didn't teach them a damn thing about, uh, you know, backside mechanics. Like, all they know how to do is overcome and project. And I think it's at the expense of timing. And that's a, I think that's, like, probably mm. the... The only really thing of value I've said the entire (laughs) week was when we were talking about timing, it's like, look, like I have like things that are non-negotiables and things that are part of my model, but I will sacrifice most of the model if the timing looks good for someone and they're running smoothly and quickly. If they, if it, if everything looks good to me from that perspective, even if something doesn't quite fit, like what my model is in my head, I'm probably not going to attack it as hard as I would because the athlete's already doing a lot of good things. And to me, timing is like the ultimate thing. Mm -hmm. So cat that was I, I i have nothing else to
1: say that was, that was. <laughs> what else we got what yeah. other questions um, right here? so we've got one that i'm trying to like tie into what we've been talking about so there's this idea of right side dominance um how does this I'm not, i don't honestly don't know how you would answer this um how would you see this pattern in the weight room and also within athletes so let's say that uh, do you see differences in the way that the asymmetries of the human body naturally are? How do those come out within uh, the athletes you work with when they sprint mm. or when they do agility or change the direction? Do you notice these things even?
2: Uh, yeah, you can in sprinting. I, I probably need a lot more reps looking at film. Um, but Darren even says like sprinting is asymmetrical. Like yeah. each side's going to look different. We're going to have a side we prefer to ISO on. And by ISO, I mean like, when we hit the ground we're going to have an isometric contract i don't know if you want to call an isometric contract that's what darian calls it but like let's say my right side hits the ground i'm going to have an iso there like there's going to be forces and my obliques are going to be doing a ton of work and i'm going to be in that right stance and i might spend a little longer on the ground on that side i might sink more into that side it might be a little less propulsive than my left side and I think you will, you do see that. Like, you even see it, like, if you watch the... You might have even shared this a while ago, like, Bolt running. Like, if you look at Bolt running, like, straight down the lane, like, he, in front he, of him... Yeah, I have that he video He drifts, his, yeah, yeah. he drifts over to the... To his the right? right. Yeah, because his left is so propulsive, right? Right. So, like, these things are asymmetrical, right? I don't think that's problematic. That's just part of your natural movement signature. Now, if we're having right. like, pain out of it or something like that, yeah, then we're going to want to, like, address it. But... Not everything's going to be perfect like that i don't know no, like this is definitely not. more your lane so I don't, I don't know whatever whatever thoughts you have on it i but, think you're right it's yeah. um when when you put the body
1: under a high degree of stress and load then it's going to default into what's safe and what's efficient and for us the deeper you get someone like the best way to think about it is like think about loading someone up with a squat right you get them deep into a squat uh, and if it's a ton of weight, then they're going to default into that hip shift. They have more than if it was a lighter load. So it's the same thing with sprinting at a high intensity. That's going to come out more, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that's what it is. And I would argue if you take them too far out of that, you are making them worse. You, if I were to get them symmetrical on both sides, I guarantee you their performance would drop Yeah. because if yeah. you're taking them out of what their body deems is efficient. We're telling it it's wrong and
2: we want symmetry. And I bet if we did that, we would make them significantly noticeably worse athletes. Well, this is the interesting thing. Like you took up, you go to like the data side where I'm still like very, very new and green and honestly don't probably have a lot of real insight. This might be the only piece I have, but um, <laughs> but um, if you don't have baselines on people when you like are looking at this, um, it's impossible to really predict anything. Like yeah. the first time you get a guy on plates and you look at like these potential asymmetries, like it doesn't tell you anything. Like. Yeah. I'm sure there are certain parameters that are going to be worrisome. Like if there's a 30% difference from side to side yeah, that's probably an issue, right? Like, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience of talking to people that know way more about this than me. But if you've never had them on plates before and there's like a 15% difference, that might just be where they live. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. But like, you're going to need to collect more data on a daily or weekly basis with this athlete to figure out where their baselines are. Um, And that's going to make things much more useful. If this athlete does get hurt, because then you know like the asymmetry is going to widen, mm-hmm. and then you're going to know what you need to get it back to, mm. as opposed to just arbitrarily picking a number. If you don't have this baseline information between asymmetries, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the other th- important thing to note on this is, is when you're looking, for example, at like a jump a counter movement jump profile on something yeah. like this on a for- on force plates. Um, if someone is coming off an injury, especially, just think this is like an interesting tidbit. If someone's coming off an injury usually at the points where there's going to be the highest amount of velocity. So like right before takeoff, right. Um, you know, in terms of like knee extension velocity and stuff like that, um, you're going to shift away from the injured leg. Yeah. Right. You're going to shift away from the injured leg. Protecting it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in the absorption phase, you might not so much. It might Mm -hmm. actually be more on the, it might be more on the injured side than, than not. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just like interesting things to think about. Like, I feel like higher velocities for an injured limb is what the body really shies away from. Velocities more than, more so than, uh, more so than loads. And I could be way off on that. I like that. It could be way off. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I just like the, what I'm kind of gathering is that like that could be a potential thing to consider in all this too. Like, yes. You know, um, we can't screen for injury if we don't have like baseline knowledge, like a baseline understanding. Like screening for injury. In this sense is going to be a process it's not just a one-off like you test them once and go oh you're at risk in my opinion like right. you need to like see a lot more right before you can like say something like that yeah so, yeah
1: because yeah. yeah you gotta be like as opposed to what or like what is the you know alternative we're talking about here like how why is it a red flag for this person when you take one measurement yeah, yeah if they're a high I performer like and they don't yeah.
2: have an injury history like right. how, how who are we to say that this is dangerous you know yeah um so you just have to be aware of that when you're looking at asymmetries i think like like we've already said, it might be working to their benefit. So, don't just automatically like log it away as you know problematic. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the other thing too: if you're a high performer, you're just about like, in my opinion, I think a Darian disagrees with me on this when we talked about it. But like, I think if you're a higher performer, you can do things that other people can at angle at you know joint angles and positions that other people can't hit. Like, I just think you're at higher risk for injury. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Know? And <laughs> yeah, I think
1: you know, I I don't know at all what the right answer is to that question, but I do know that when I started sprinting the way that we were today, it just felt right. Um, I'm by no means an elite athlete, but it just felt like I was using my fascial chains, my slings. I felt like I was actually moving like a human being instead of trying to force something upon myself. And Mm -hmm. I had really extensively worked at the old technique in the past, at least at one point in my life. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I think at some point the human body has limits, but why is LeBron James still relatively an extremely healthy player and he's at the top of his game? I don't know, I think it's really, um, if I were to guess, I think how many previous injuries does this individual have is the question to ask. Because as you, get more injured, you naturally compensate more. It's like a double-edged sword. The human body's really good at compensating in a way that will help us survive, but it's also really good, really willing to compensate. That's the thing. It's very willing to do so. So if this person has more injuries, then perhaps if they haven't been fully recovered, uh, if they haven't done the full rehab process to gain trust through that range of motion, then you have these underlying compensations. They don't even know are there. Yes, and then you couple that with what we're
2: talking about, then you could have a problem.
1: Yes. That's what—that's my opinion. But no, I, don't I think know. you're 100. I seriously don't know.
2: I think you're 100 right. Like I don't disagree with that at all. I think load, like previous injury is huge. I think load, mm-hmm. like properly progressed load is huge. Like if you're throwing ridiculous loads on someone that's not been prepared for the load, I think that's potentially a huge risk. Uh, but I, I think the other, the the other thing we have to be careful of on the flip side is, is if we're trying to assess for injury. Um, I think m- uh, demonizing certain movements could be potentially problematic. Only yes. beca- We might see some movements that are causing certain injuries but we have to remember that o- ultimately these injuries that are occurring could potentially be outliers. Yes. Because if, th- if most of the population is doing that movement and only a very small percentage is getting hurt the movement might not be what's causing the the issue mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying I'm sure it could I'm not saying it's not I'm just saying that potentially there are other factors in play that are causing this now if like 90% of the population that was doing a specific movement was getting injured on it I think we'd have a lot more to to stand on for that but otherwise I think we just need to take the the, the yeah. biomechanical side of this uh with a grain of salt to some extent yeah uh, if that makes sense like i agree yeah i think the, the jury's just still very much out on a lot of that in my opinion yeah we, um, d- we don't know and i could be i could be totally wrong i'm not that smart of a person i'm just kind of just conjecture here so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um uh, what's next we got any more got any more we'll good questions it. here um i don't even know if we're answering them really we're just talking but uh what i think we could take this a lot of different ways
1: what's one thing you've learned that you didn't foresee with your um with your career Hmm. that's interesting uh shit one thing i didn't foresee I, I can think of a lot of things, honestly. I'm just trying to think which one would be the most interesting. I can't think of one yet, so you go really? first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I didn't foresee, like, I, I, it depends on, like, the time frame we're talking about, too. Like, when I first started out, um, I've always told people I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today if I didn't get introduced to the concepts I got interest, introduced to early on. Like, I hated being a generic personal trainer. I really did hate mm-hmm. it. Um, was I was hurting people more than I was helping them. Um I wasn't getting people strong. I was getting them strong in a shitty way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just didn't feel rewarding because I wasn't doing a good job because I didn't know how to do a good job. Uh, So I think for me, I didn't foresee the fact that uh, really so much of what we're taught in school and what we're taught in um, our certification courses, I don't use any of that. Like I really don't use a lot of it. Everything I've learned that's made a difference in people's lives was through uh, secondary education and internships. And that information goes against what I believe to be true at the time. And I'm sure I'll change my opinion more and more as this goes on, but (laughs) I think that if you don't keep an open mind and if you're not willing to accept what you think is right to be wrong, if you're not always willing to do that, but still stay grounded in like facts, right? Yeah then that I think is, is what leads to very myopic and closed closed sided, uh, perspectives of things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what will stagnate. I think the field, but I say that as someone
2: who is <laughs> young and, you know, trying to come up. myself. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, uh, I think for me, the biggest realization is, is that like, I think it's important to have a system. Yeah. Um, But I think the system has to be really global. Yeah. I think, like, being really standardized at a nitty-gritty level is, at least for me, extremely problematic. And for a long time, I thought, like, it was, like, I had to have it that way. Mm -hmm. And now I just don't think that I do. Um, I think each situation is so unique. It's almost impossible to, like, truly understand that until you've been in a bunch of different ones, which I've been fortunate enough to be in. They're so unique that you just need to have all that information to process and in order to come up with the solution that you want for that given person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much, like, for better or worse, someone that, like I fought this for a long time, but now I'm like more comfortable with it. Um, someone that needs to see what's going on before I come in with a plan, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I know that's kind of counterproductive to like the way I think a lot of us think where it's like, we need to come in with a plan and execute it. But I feel like if we do that, we have a bias to the plan that we've made and it blinds us to the holes in the plan. So I would rather go in with a general idea of what I want to do, assess what's going on and then work my way back from there. Um, And if you can't do that, if you don't have an understanding of where to look and what to see and who to talk to and the information you need in order to put it all together after you see what you're seeing. And that's still a work in progress for me. Like I'm far from perfect at it and and, and I probably never will be. But I think now like I'm very comfortable like operating in that manner or more comfortable operating that manner. Um, I know it's probably not the most popular way to go about things, but I do think that it yields the best conversations with athletes and other coaches. Mm -hmm. I think that it brings about more more opportunities for growth and uh, I would say the down the potential down there are downsides so I would say the downside is it's much harder to kind of quantify what you're doing sometimes and if you're a very like data driven or logical person that can be a bit problematic and that's something I need to work on you know finding that marriage between standardized stuff And kind of the free-flowing system that I have in my mind right now. It's almost like school, right? Yeah. Like, if you overly standardize school, you take all the desire for learning out of the way. It just becomes box checking to get the SAT completed, to get the the standards of learning done, to get into college. Like, but what did you actually learn? Like, what was your experience? If those things aren't happening because everything's so standardized, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. That's depriving you of growth as a human being. So I think when we coach we have to be painfully aware that standardizing everything and keeping everything within rigid a rigid framework all the time can backfire if that makes sense yep yeah yep and it does get to the point though where you have to make those sacrifices
1: yes when you're oh, working 100%. with a certain size team or group 100%. you really do and that's what sucks um that's probably why one-on-one training is, is more effective um because you can control more variables inherently yeah
2: well and what's the expectation too? yeah the expectation for a lot of people is to be taken through a really crisp session where everything there everything's kind of familiar and feels good like feels uh, um, like heavily struck like I don't know just heavily structured and like some people like crave that mm-hmm. um, for me it's, it's almost one of those things where it's like if I need to do that I can turn it on and do it I just don't believe that the quality is really all that high doing it that way yeah um and that's just not the way i think but i think other people probably think that way and it works perfectly fine for them so i'm not mm-hmm. saying this is right or wrong you got to figure out what you like and then what your situation demands uh but i think that having a little more flexibility and not you know robotically placing everything in in a certain label like i just think that going it just goes overboard and it's just not that great a lot of times so. yeah yeah Yeah, it's funny.
1: Every strength and conditioning podcast just comes down to it depends. It really, (laughs) it really does. I know it it really does. Yeah. (laughs) Let's go back to some more questions here. Um, How complex is it to figure out what's causing an issue with an athlete? Um, That's broad as hell. I don't know. (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so. Oh wow! Um,
2: yeah, see, that's another. Like, why'd you what's, pick this one? What's the <laughs> I, I, I the first one I look at. We gotta give everyone a fair shot. That, that is true. Whoever that is, sorry, your question. Just way too much going on there. Um,
1: Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that. Well, we're, we could we could take that somewhere. Like, um, let me read that again. How complex is it to figure out what's causing an issue? Very. God, that's
2: okay. <laughs> yeah, um, very
1: complex. Jesus. What's your assessment protocol like?
2: Mine? Yeah. Um, Dude, because that's how you initially screen for problems. So, so this is a more of a you question. I don't do as much. I am starting to slowly understand the importance of collecting baseline information and having an assessment. Yeah. I know that's weird considering I'm in the field for so long, uh, but I always felt like old assessments I did gave me no information. I just did them. Yeah. Um, And so I kind of just didn't do them for a while. And I just put people through basic workouts and see what I see and Mm -hmm. go from there however I will agree with you I think you know what you do I think it's extremely valuable because it's really basic and you know what you're looking for so you tell me what you're doing and then I'll just start doing it yeah (laughs) it's it's so
1: um, God it's it's so much with whether you're in a group or an individual but uh, generally speaking if you understand where someone's underlying skeletal genetic biases. Most people have a bias of being in a relatively inhaled or exhaled state. Now I know that sounds weird, but it's really just like when you inhale, you have joint actions happen. When you exhale, you have joint actions happen. If you're more biased towards one or the other, depending on if you're a bigger or smaller person, tend to, like bigger people tend to be more biased towards producing force and exhalation. Smaller people and thinner people tend to be on the other end of the spectrum. So be producing force or absorbing force and inhalation. So there's a couple of tests you can do. I always recommend the three quickest ones you could do is can you touch your toes? Yes, that means that you have the joint actions associated uh, at this current moment, according to this one test, that you can achieve an exhaled state. Can you squat all the way down, ass to grass, keeping your heels down? If you can do that, then yes with
2: would that be with like minimal horizontal displacement correct okay
1: minimal yes but if you can get asto grass you're, you're going to be getting the joint actions associated That's with anyway. because
2: with that limb arc model you by uh-huh. getting that deep you're going back into that correct that position anyway okay correct cool.
1: yeah so then after that i'm going to do a laying down active knee to chest activity which is going to show me can you keep your hip and extension on the ground so you got to keep one leg that hamstring pinned to the floor and you're like a plank and then you bring the other, like a plank on your back with your legs straight out in front of you. And then you bring the other leg knee to your chest as far as you can without the other hamstring coming off the floor. Hip extension on one side, flexion on the other. And the ability to dissociate the two. So then that tells me, can you achieve and what asymmetries exist between your ability to go into an inhaled state and stay in an exhaled state on the other side of the body. So that's like that asymmetry test. That's gonna tell me a lot too. So within those three tests, you're, you're going to be biased towards one or the other. Then I'm going to look at how you actually exercise and go through things. And then through that lens, I understand what compensations you're doing because it all falls into a relatively predictable, assuming there's no surgeries, trauma to the tissues, um, genetic, uh, morph- morphological issues. And then you can kind of roll from there. So that's what I do. Those three things will tell me where you're biased. Are you on more one end or the other? And then when you move, things make a lot more sense to Mm -hmm. me because I've already um, objectively placed you in one of two camps. But Mm -hmm. then there's an infinite amount of compensations and things that can happen from
2: there, which is way too um, specific to be general about. Yeah, no, that makes (laughs) a lot of sense. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I, I, you know, talking to Zach and a couple other people, it sounds like those are kind of the go-to tests for the people that really understand what's going on with this stuff. Um, and, 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 I mean, don't get me wrong, I do feel like a lot of that you can kind of come to the conclusion by even just looking at the person and watching them exercise. Yeah. But it is, I think it is good. I'm starting to, realize, like I said. And one of the last answers, I think getting baselines on people is super important. Yeah. Um, and I used to not think it was quite so important in some cases, just because either my lack of understanding of what the information was that was being given to me or the tests themselves, for example, like the FMS, just don't tell me anything. God, you know? the FMS is different. Yeah, just doesn't tell me anything. Um, you know, I used that one for a long time and then I was like, I'm really not getting anything out of this. Why am I doing it? You yeah. Know? So, yeah. So, so, uh, you know. That's kind of where I'm at with all that, with all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah. No. Uh, was that was that it for the questions, or was there any more? I think there were a couple more, but they were way too specific. Um, there
1: was stuff about like cervical spine, oh, like laxity.
2: <laughs> where where is the cervical spine? A, I don't even know. I, um, I'm not <laughs> a physical
1: therapist, so I'm not obligated to answer that question. And just some things about like sciatica. Um, that's that's another you. That's another for new sure. Thing um <laughs> but no i was gonna i wanted to follow through with the idea of the assessments with what are your performance assessments because those are biomechanical table kind of tests. yeah so what about performance assessments are you using honestly i i used to do a lot mm-hmm. but now i do very few because i just think that you get to a certain point where you can tell that they're getting better at their sport and being a better athlete but also if you have too many cooks in the kitchen then you start to overthink things or at least I did so I dramatically yeah. reduced
2: mine. uh if you had the technology I think don't hand time because it's worthless oh God. but um if you had the technology timing on sprints massive but you can test that all the time yeah um I, I actually really enjoyed having the just jump mat um, yeah those are awesome yeah like back when I was at UMW like I used that frequently um not just, like, for a uh, test and then train for a period of time and then retest, but I used it, like, every day with the guys. So you get a real feel for, like, one, if you're watching closely what their jump strategies are, and then, two, like, some kind of their their range of abilities in jumping on a day-to-day basis, Yeah, um, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, those are two that I used a lot. I used to use a lot of strength tests now. I don't really find that to be all that useful. Yeah, um, I, I kind I of either. you kind of know you're getting stronger like just by the you know basic principles of progressive overload. Right. There might be a time where I want someone to rip something heavy. But I wouldn't do it in the context of like today's max day. Be more yeah. like in the context of for our strength stimulus today, we're going to hit something as like as heavy as possible, like as the heaviest we can for three reps. Yep. I wouldn't like tout it as like a testing day. That's right. It's something that I can certainly use as data, um, but it's not going to be like. You know, I think the the old school like we test at the beginning of the semester and then we test again at the end of the semester and see where we're at. Just think that's kind of dated and really not like all that much of a KPI for like what actually is going on in their sport Mm -hmm. um i think getting stronger is just good for just general robustness and and, you know obviously collision sport to to kind of like win those battles obviously that's important um but part of you know a collision sport and the collisions that go on within them is not just who can produce more force you know it's who can produce more force in the right directions in a quicker period of time while you know using technique that's going to help them win so there's just so many factors there i think you know as long as we know we're getting stronger however we want to measure that we're we're good to go um the rest of it just kind of doesn't you know it just doesn't apply to that so um yeah i think the time the timing gauge like tracking jump heights i think is great um if we're going to do a strength test the isometric mid five pull isn't necessarily a bad way to Ooh, go um, why is that i mean i like it because it's pretty idiot proof and it, we can get a read for, like, how much force we're producing in a max effort thing with very low external load on the system, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great way to go about kind of testing that if we want to just talk about straight force without yeah. worrying about load, which I think is great. That's um, good. Yeah. Loaded jumps, if you can track that, like, not just height, but, like, it be force metrics if you have force plates. I think loaded jumps are good. Why is that? Um, um, uh, depending on someone's force velocity profile, then you'll know... If you want to go down that route, if someone mm. is needs force or needs velocity, you can load accordingly and keep them at the loads that work based on the speed of the bar, and and or the force metrics that you're seeing. Like maybe you want to emphasize force, or, uh, you know, more force or more velocity. You then will work with load, you know, work loads to figure that out. But then also, if you want to work on specific metric underlying metrics uh, within a jump. You can alter those, but with the loads that you're using as well. So I when I talk about like underlying metrics, I'm talking about like, um, you know, maybe eccentric or concentric impulse, force times time yep. within the jump. Uh, it could be uh, rate of eccentric force development, which is a big one. Yeah. Um, so maybe there's something I want to emphasize in that that will help help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a biomechanical thing where, like, someone yields a lot, and I want them to be a little stiffer and create create uh, that peak power um, yeah. through a smaller range of motion. Um, could be any of those things, really. But yeah, like the data can then inform us. So it's not maybe like testing so much as it is having the data inform our exercise decisions that will then change some of the underlying metrics that we should be testing, like on a pretty frequent basis, if we have mm-hmm. the technology for it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, oh man I've totally had a question oh
1: eccentric force absorption like rate right? rate of force development you're going to train that then I've I've seen some arguments that say the whole triphasic protocols is laid out in terms of doing tons of eccentrics like that might be a little too much Mm -hmm. and just doing one or two sets is going to be obviously Instead of like much six less. sets of two
2: with a sixty-second right. second eccentric right. or whatever yeah. yeah you know what i'm saying i do know what you're saying i don't i don't have the knowledge to tell you what would be better i, I would say I just it's probably it's, highly variable based on the athlete
1: for sure yeah yeah volume and all that stuff all things considered but i just feel like when you get to a certain point that eccentric stuff you just really beat them up and it's a lot on the system and i just feel like if you do train that you know even if you're doing it three times a week right two sets i just al- have always geared towards that rather than the heavy really heavy approach but again it's going to depend on the volume yeah well this is All the other, things
2: equal this is the other thing i don't even uh, this is something i should i'm glad we're talking now because this is stuff i can ask you know people at my work who are much more attuned to this stuff um i don't know like once you get past like the newbie lifting gains like how much lifting really yeah. changes your yeah. Like, aside from, like, some potentiation work, I don't know how right. much it really changes some of those metrics. Yeah. And some of those metrics might be really hard to change. So that's something that's something I would have to ask, like, which me, which of these metrics are the most plastic, um, you know, uh, which ones can be altered the most. And uh, once you kind of figure that out, then it's like, well, what interventions are going to work the best to change yeah. these measures? Um because that's the interesting thing. Like we talk about, like force velocity profiling, and you know this person is very force dominant and needs more work on the velocity end. Like, in the context of a loaded jump, maybe you get them better at that. But does that transfer over to unloaded jumps, things without external load within yeah. the within the context of the sport? I don't really know. You know, um, there are some people who would argue it does not. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think this is the the area of the field that needs the most the research being done on it right now, like, if we change these metrics, you know, how are we changing them? And then when we change them, in what context are they being changed? And then once we go to the sport or something else, can we measure if there's a change there? Right. You know? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting... That whole thing is interesting. That whole thing is, is I, th- I still think, like, relatively unknown. Like. Yeah. You know? So. I think it is, too. Um, I... Totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, oh, l- well, actually, you know, this is this is interesting. So let's just shift it over a little bit to the programming thing we were talking about earlier. Right? Ah, yes, yes. So this is the thing. Like, oh wait, I got it. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I got it. Okay. Um, this we were talking about this
1: actually multiple times off the air about how little potentially strength and conditioning really does make a difference beyond that novice stage. Yeah, very important. I get that, but. And obviously, there's no answer for this because the, the research isn't there yet. But how much difference does it really make um, after that novice stage? I don't know. You see some really good strength and conditioning programs and some bad teams and vice versa. Uh, but does it really uh, come out to the equivalent of more wins and losses? Like, that's uh, really what well my yeah. question always centers on. The ultimate on. Like how KPI
2: do we... is winning. Right. Are so, we winning?
1: Yeah. Yes. And I, I think it... I'm not trying to say that it doesn't make a difference. It absolutely does. But to what extent has always been my question. I think that'll only come with more time. But tying it back into the programming aspect of things, um, last night we were talking about the Quadrant yeah. stuff. and yeah. how, So you want to give a quick review on that?
2: Yeah, in just a second I will. Uh, prior to that, just like over top of it, I would just say the... Um the environment is so, like, you know, you t- we talk about our value once yeah. we've kind of established some of these easy gains, like yeah. these easy things. Uh, establishing and contributing to the right environment is going to be where we, I think, have the most yeah. value. Um, yeah. And that's why I think, like, it, asking an athlete how he feels is so important. And I know, like, the data science crowd would be like, well, you have to be able to quantify it. And I don't, dis- I don't disagree. Yeah. We, we, we want to be able to quantify it to ensure that, like, what we're doing is working in a, in a numbers thing. Yeah. But the brain is powerful, and, and feelings, and 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 getting a feel for your environment conversation. Is, is massive. And if an athlete yeah. on you know in the heat of battle feels better and is doing better things, um, who are we to kind of question some of the things that are happening? As long as it's not complete dog shit, and they're you know they're just getting by because they're just uber talented, mm-hmm. you know it should never just be dog shit. But. Yeah. Um, um, uh, you know, the environment's going to be huge. And so you have to set up one that um, there's a constant, you know, development of conversation between yourself, the athletes, and the other coaches to ensure that they believe that what's going on is working. Um, That's think, the key. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to have that. But. Back to the other stuff with like the I think the, the the best way to set all that up is to establish some sort of simple language like the quadrants or any or high low yes. or anything you want to talk about with those things and we were talking about it last night like consolidating stress whether you're using the quadrants or whether you're using high low um, it's all about preparing the athlete for the big days yeah. the days where the outputs need to be the highest mm-hmm. all the other days should just Be the stuff that leaves them in the best position to have the highest level of outputs on the days where it matters the most. In the off-season, that's going to be your highest, your biggest training days. And in-season, it's going to be your your competition days. Yes. Right? And everything else should be molded around that. Um, Right. We would love to be able to consolidate stress like the quadrants when we talk about it. Like put all of our high-level stressors between sport and training on the same days. But obviously sometimes that's not possible, especially in season, because the highest loads in sport will be on the match days and you're not going to do the highest level lift days that you can do on that day. So you can't just blindly follow consolidation of stressors. Um, You can't just blindly follow high low. There has to be kind of a feeling out process between yourself and the coaching staff to put the days where you think you need to do your hardest training at the right moments so that we don't lose some of the qualities developed in the off season and we are most prepared for the days of competition, right? Mm-hmm. So I showed you like the graph, um, showed you like the graph last night of the starting pitcher who pitches every five days. Now in a perfect world, if we would follow distress stress consolidation of the high low model to a T, the high intensity day uh, of pitching in you know, pitching six to eight innings, uh, you know, hopefully he pitches well, yeah. um, uh, of pitching, you know, six to eight innings, um, you know, if we follow those models blindly, then we be like, well, he's got to do his high intensity lift days too. So tomorrow we can just have a completely low day. That's just not possible. The pitcher's not going to want to do that, and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Right. So on that day, we're going to do just some sort of low level like flush work, and then the next day, if it's a day off for him, let's let's try to keep that day consistent. Let's try to keep the stress message consistent on that day. So if he's off that day, let's not try to do anything else unless mm-hmm. he wants some sort of activity that's just going to be more restorative. Right. Right. Um. The following next couple days, he's going to be doing some throwing, ramping up at the highest with like a bullpen, right? And you know, again, we talked about last night that's highly variable from team to team, how many pitches, what intensity he goes to, blah blah blah. But let's say roughly he goes, you know, twelve to fifteen pitches in a bullpen at about eighty to ninety-five percent intensity, um, you know, during that time, you know, during that time frame. That's his high intensity, his highest intensity day, um, outside of his, you know, pitching every five days. So that might be the day where we can touch if we want to follow stress consolidation. That might be the day where we can touch, uh, you know, his hardest lift session. That might be the day to do it. Um, maybe he doesn't like that though, and we have to remember we could we could bump it one day, either up or back, yeah. uh, you know, based on what the pitcher wants to do there. But that's the thing, like just rearranging uh, your plan to fit what's going on with the sport. I think that's like the ultimate in reverse engineering. Um, and if it doesn't quite match up you think with like the highest level of performance then you just need to slowly pitch that idea to the you know to the guy that you're trying to deal with does that make sense it does and i like it
1: because it's so like you can adjust it as needed like the i found and what i learned through my own uh experiences working with college athletes and high school athletes and also doing internships is the annual plan thing never goes as annually no planned. why is there an annual plan? it makes no yeah. sense because yeah. it never ever ever comes even remotely close to being what you want the so, annual plan
2: is what's going on in the sport yes and then you week by week piece together what's going to be best that's right based so, on what's going on for that
1: even like two months in advance is extremely difficult So using that quadrant system, you can go week by week and it wouldn't be very challenging once you got the learning curve out of the way. It's not even that much of a learning curve. No. So it's it's really just about balance. And then once you do that, I think it
2: becomes very easy. Yes, it absolutely does. You just need to understand that, like, I have windows that need to, like, I need to address certain stimuluses so we don't lose trip you know the stuff we worked on in the offseason right you know that's the main thing that i have to worry about with that kind of stuff and as long as i'm checking off those boxes like we're hitting you know some sort of close to max strength work even if it's very microdose like mm-hmm. as long as we're just touching that stimulus from time to time within our training um, as long as we're doing things that prime the system for you know higher output days and then we're touching you know whatever other components we deem necessary I think we're in a great spot, you know, and I think yeah. that's the beauty of this too. Is is like, our time is our time is a huge constraint. Like we have more oversight in college and high school, where, where we can you know design hour to two hour long lifting sessions if we want to. Yeah. Um, I think that's incredibly stupid, <laughs> but we can do it. And the pros, it almost works backwards, where getting 20 minutes sometimes is a chore, right? Yeah. Um, and that probably is not enough. But we can find this happy medium if we can get 30 to 45 minutes. I think we can get a lot done in that time that yeah. you know, That addresses the things that need to be addressed from a load perspective just to prepare people for loads and to keep, their, keep the stimulus of strength up, for example. Um, and if we could do that, um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a great spot. We're in yeah. a great spot. I think, um, and I, I think it just doesn't take as much work as we think if we have athletes that are already fairly well established in the weight room to some extent and if you don't it might be a little bit more of a challenge totally would be um but we can still address things that we deem to be important we can still address tendon we can still address uh you know some sort of explosive power you know stuff at some point point. Yeah. and that's where i think the beauty of like talking to some of these other coaches really comes into play like if i know that i need a strength stimulus but it's got to be short I can refer to conjugate method or something like that where I'm like, work yep. up to a three at max and then hit these two accessories that I want to be, you know, decently heavily loaded or emphasize something in your health plan that we need to, to right. you know, address. And then they're done and that's it. And we've hit something I think that's like pretty acceptable for the constraints that are upon us. That's beautiful. If we need to, ha- you know, address more of the, um, the high outputs, but I don't really want to like uh, just drain them. I yeah. just want to prime them. Like Rajesh talked to me about this, the, the neural charge circuits. Set a timer for eight to ten minutes, pick pick a jump, pick a sprint, pick a throw, hit two reps of one, move to the next, two reps of two reps of that, move to the next, two reps yep. of that, move to the yep. next. Kind of work at your own pace. All the output should be really high. We're done in ten minutes, and you just hit you know an alactic stimulus that we wouldn't have hit otherwise. You know? Beautiful. Yeah, stuff Beautiful. like that. Like but this is where the research needs to tell us, is this stuff working? Because I know in my head and in working with people that they love it and, it's, and they feel like that it's working for them, but we don't have the, I don't think we really have the data to back it up yet. We just have the right. concepts. Like post-activation potentiation is still very much like an unknown like factor out there. It so it, when we yeah. use stuff like that, we talk about like, oh, post-activation potentiation. I don't know if it's doing, like if it's How changing. How long it lasts for. I don't yeah. know if it's changing yeah. metrics or not. And maybe a warm-up would change the same metrics. You know what i'm saying like comparing methodologies to each yeah, other. yeah
1: there's so many variables but the that bottom fun?
2: line is if they say they feel better and like things are working in a way where they get out of the session like not feeling bad and we've broken up the, some of the monotony of a season i think that's a giant win because it just allows the brain to be more free and at peace when it's time to go do something competitive. i think the whole idea i've gotten myself to is does it release dopamine within their brain and if the answer is yes i'm doing it you know yeah, that's pretty much how, like all i got on the on the programming side like i got more coming with sean talking about that obviously but but i think the rever- reverse engineering from the sport is very important you need to understand where people are at
1: tell them about your uh, presentation
2: um, um uh, i can't give it all away man i gotta i mean like what, when the can people. they find it oh 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 yeah. uh, that's gonna be i think the first or second week of september i believe i think it's like september 7th through the 13th is sean lights for a step up challenge She asked me to speak about programming i will probably disappoint people and not get into the nitty-gritty of programming nah. but talk more about this stuff um with that being said i think it should be it should be a blast looking forward to, to having that up there Oh, yeah. Thankfully, he's letting me record it beforehand, so if it's terrible, I can uh, I can redo it as many times as I want before I uh, <laughs> before I give it to him. But um, but no, man, yeah, I think I think yeah, like w- one of the big focuses there will be reverse engineering from the sport back. We talk about that a lot, but like let's actually look at like what are the speeds, what's the, what are the change of directions, what's actually happening from a position by position level, and like maybe a sport or two, which is what I'll focus on, and that kind of will help guide your framework of how to train in the offseason to prepare for that. Uh, and then how to, in season, maintain those qualities um, and and work around, you know, the, the sport, which is obviously the highest priority at the time. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. But I think that... You, you got one more
1: thing No, just wrap? cut it there. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll do a... Let's do a conditioning pod at some point. Yeah, and we, we definitely talk about should.
2: That. We definitely should. But yeah, no, thanks a lot, man. This was a ton of fun. Hell should yes. Definitely, definitely try to hit these up more often. Thanks to all the people that asked the questions, too. Very very helpful to get us going so we didn't have to just carry it all by ourselves (laughs) but uh yeah man dope good stuff sweet awesome